Hi, guys. So just a little bit of housekeeping before we get into this episode. Um, so we originally recorded, tried to do this episode as one, uh, just one episode like we did for the first one. Um, and it ended up being very, very long. Um, so- it was a marathon recording session. And <laughs> yeah. You'll be able to tell by the end of the recording that we were completely <laughs> exhausted. Yeah. So we're splitting it into two episodes, but we weren't that wasn't our intention so we're not going to say anything about it in the actual episode and going forward all of our episodes are going to be two parts just because we want to you know not feel like we have to try to cram everything into an hour and gloss over things that might be interesting uh to explore in more depth so without further ado (laughs) enjoy the 1975 tony awards Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Winter Garden Scrapbook, the 29th annual celebration of the American Theater Wing's Tony Awards, presented by the League of New York Theaters and Producers, and brought to you live from the stage of the Winter Garden Theater on Broadway in New York City. Welcome back to My Little Tonys. The podcast where we, year by year, go through the Tony Award ceremonies and talk about the highlights and perhaps the lowlights. I'm Anna. And I'm Tim. And we're talking about the 1975 Tonys. And this is a super bizarre ceremony in, yeah. ma- in many ways. Yeah, from the opening notes of it, it is just bizarro. I think the number one weird thing about this is that none of the... There are a lot of performances in it, but none of the nominated shows perform. For some reason, the Tonys in the 70s are, like, sort of messing with the format. It wasn't like that in the beginning. Like, when we did the 67 Tonys, like, all of the shows, all the best musical nominees performed. Yeah, it really seems as though they're trying to break the mold of the award show as we know it with this um, and make it something different and make it into this event that I don't think is very successful. No, so the theme the theme of this show is the Winter Garden Theater, which is where the awards are held. It doesn't have a host, first of all. It has a team of seven actors who are Larry Blyden, George S. Irving, Larry Kurt, Carol Lawrence, Michelle Lee, Bernadette Peters, and Bobby Van, who kind of put on like skits and songs from shows that were in the Winter Garden Theater starting in like 1911 and up through the present. I think what might be happening is that like the Broadway community is kind of grappling with this opportunity that they now have where like once a year they have they they have this like national platform so mm-hmm. it's like you know maybe we'll use this to sort of expose the U.S. to like Broadway history and kind of like have sort of a record maybe they weren't even thinking far enough as like it being able to be something people could access in the future but just like show these you know these songs and these shows that are sort of long gone yeah and and celebrate that and i do think that something to note is that a lot of the presenters are classic vaudeville and broadway stars who were at the end of their lives you have stuff like i mean i guess we'll get to that or maybe we'll get to it right now but like part of the tradition of broadway is is vaudeville and part of that tradition is blackface and they have someone coming out and representing al jolson wearing full blackface and doing his number which is shocking Mm -hmm. that they would do that i mean In the 70s, you would think that that would already be, like, totally taboo. You know, and I think that there are probably still a lot of Al Jolson uh, apologists among us. Right, and it's like, I mean, you can't erase the fact 
that it happened, but it seems like they put that out there in like a celebratory way and not a way that it's like we have to acknowledge sort of the ugliness of the history of this performance. And it's also crazy that they were like, sorry, we don't have time for a performance from The Wiz because we have to have this guy do blackface. Yeah. It's like that's it's horrible. Yeah. No, it is really bad. So let's go through sort of the big shows this year, even though they're not represented in any real way. So this season, there were 12 musicals and 21 plays that were nominated for at least one Tony. It was a super busy season. And I found an article in the New York Times that was actually talking about how this was like the busiest season in a while. And the first one in like four or five years where almost all of the theaters were occupied. The nominees for Best Musical were The Wiz, which was nominated for eight and won seven. Mac and Mabel, which was nominated for eight and won zero. Shenandoah, which was nominated for six and won two. Uh, and The Lieutenant, which was nominated for four and one zero. And then for the plays. So the other thing about this crowded season is that there were some categories that had six nominees. Some of the categories only had four and some of them had six, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, so the best play, uh, there was Equus, which was nominated for five and one two. Short Eyes, which was nominated for one and one zero. Same Time Next Year, which was nominated for three and won one. Sizway Banzi is Dead and The Island, which were performed in rep and were just nominated as one, um, which was nominated for four and won two. Seascape, which was nominated for three and won one. And The National Health, which was nominated for one and won zero. And since none of them performed, we don't really have the same kind of structure that we usually have because that sort of dictates when and where we talk about the shows. Mm-hmm. So we're going to kind of be playing it by ear. Um, But maybe we should talk about the opening, and then maybe we'll talk about The Wiz. Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. So I guess my big question with this opening, um, it's kind of a cold open where this kind of dreamy, Follies-inspired history of a theater is kind of given to us. Standing alone on the stage, looking out into the darkened auditorium, is to place place yourself at the mercy of time, Sound, an overwhelming memory. Yes, it's very Follies. And Follies also performs because it was at the Winter Garden. It's funny that like Follies was such a flop and, and it was a few years before that. And even in 1975, they're like, oh yeah, this actually had some pretty good stuff in it. So, you know, you see the shots of the empty theater and you hear kind of like the echoes. The performers, long gone. The music, we can recall. The dancers, vanished footsteps in the ever-changing sands of time. You do, you do get a tiny snippet of Mac and Mabel uh, in the opening where they have like Bernadette Peters kind of fake filming a like scene from a silent movie. Movies are getting to be a generally accepted form of entertainment. Mac Senate is turning out as one reelers over there in Brooklyn. So it's not like a real number from it, but at least you do kind of get her in character. And there were actually, I noticed there were like a lot of technical problems in this with how much they were switching back and forth between live segments and sort of pre-taped stuff. And they had a lot of like, you know, there was like a giant prop Tony award on screen. They had Mm -hmm. a lot of people like turning it around and then all of a sudden there was someone in it. Well, yeah, at times it's like very adventurous and uh, very show-offy, but then at other times I feel like it 
really misses the mark and feels really hokey. Like at the beginning, I was like, oh, it's cool that they're kind of, you know, showing theater from like 1910 to 1930s. There aren't as many records of it. So it's like cool that they're doing a scene from this show, whatever. And it's very like sort of hokey kind of Borscht Belt humor, Mm -hmm. which I did appreciate. But after a while, I was like, all right, like, let's Let's get on with it. Interesting to know, the ceremony takes place on April 20th of 1975, (laughs) so I wonder if there were any uh, shenanigans going on. Yeah, maybe that's why uh, they had so many technical problems (laughs) and miscuings. So they had, like, they have Bernadette doing this weird, like, Scottish song. I didn't really know most of the songs that they did. I knew the Cole Porter one, Mm -hmm. uh, like, at Long Last Love. Yeah, that weird Scottish one, I believe, is by Jerome Kern. My favorite was Bernadette and Michelle Lee doing Ohio from Wonderful Town. Yeah. That's a great song and they both sounded really good. Why, oh, why, oh, why, oh, why did I ever leave Ohio? It's you. I kind of wonder. I guess you kind of did mention this, but um, you know, the point of the Tonys is, in my opinion, to you know. I guess one of the points is to advertise the shows of that season. And right. I I think at this point they were still figuring out what the point of the Tonys is. Mm-hmm. Um. But they. It's funny, like that. This is a. This is focused on the Winter Garden Theater, but since it was in 1975, they do not mention what would become the longest resident, which is Cats. Oh, yes. Which I think is probably for the best for Mm -hmm. all of us. I guess the only show that we get a number from that season, which coincidentally it was at the Winter Garden Theater, is um, Angela Lansbury in Gypsy. Yeah, I don't think that was a coincidence. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's what it was leading up to. It's funny because she also does... Well, I thought it was funny that when Carol Channing comes on, she's like, the Winter Garden Theater was my bad luck charm. (laughs) The Winter Garden. Well, every time that I get in the vicinity of the Winter Garden, I get what is known as, well, it's called hives is what it is. (laughs) And Angela's like, it's my good luck charm because I won Tonys for both the shows I was in here. Congratulations, Angela. And you also won the Tony in this very theater for Maine, didn't you? Oh, yes. Right here at the Winter Garden. It's certainly been my good night theater. You know, I think from uh, my perspective, I enjoyed seeing how these theatrical traditions that vaudeville created, with the exception of blackface, are kind of honored. and The, the big exception. <laughs> with the big exception of Al Jolson. You know, it, I thought it was great to see how you know, at this point in the 70s, something like this doctor sketch that Bernadette Peters plays a nurse in was such a direct precursor to Saturday Night Live, which I think had either just begun or was to begin, you know, but you know, oh, or yeah, something yeah. like Laugh-In, um, these sketch comedy um, TV shows. How do you do, sir? How do you do? Is this the office of Dr. Cronkite? Mm-hmm, I'm his nurse. Oh, is the doctor sick too? No, I'm a trained nurse. Oh, you do tricks. So I guess maybe getting into the four best musicals, it's sort of interesting. I mean, we were talking about how I think they are all pretty good scores, and 
they're also all very diverse in terms of like musical form. Like you have The Wiz, which is obviously like sort of classic R&B. And then you have Shenandoah, which is kind of like a throwback Rodgers and Hammerstein-ish type of score. And then Lieutenant, which is like a rock musical that is very directly tied to like hair and Tommy and that style of music. And then um, what's the fourth one? Mac and Mabel. Mac and Mabel. Mac and Mabel, which is like, you know, classic Jerry Herman and also kind of like 20s pastiche Mm-hmm. Um, so you have some good, some interesting variation there. It, they're all very, very different shows uh, in terms of musical style. Yeah, I would say out of every Tony Award ceremony that we've covered, which it was has just been two besides this, <laughs> um, this was by far the easiest year to listen through, and I'm going to be paying some of these recordings to listen back to. Yeah, me too. So I guess we should start out with The Wiz, which was the big winner that night. It won... Almost every Tony it was nominated for, the only one it lost was Best Book, which lost to Shenandoah. Which, based on the criticism that past and present of The Wiz, I think the book is probably its weakest link. The weak point. And actually, I think that's something that all of these shows this year have in common is weak books. Yeah. (laughs) So The Wiz ran um, for over 1,600 performances, so it was a big hit. The synopsis is, uh, it's a retelling of L. Frank Baum's classic 1900 children's novel, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, in the context of modern African-American culture. So it it was a big hit, but it got kind of mediocre reviews, and they, they considered closing it pretty quickly but then they did something that was kind of unusual for the time and they mounted like a big television campaign and they spent a lot of money like running commercials for it constantly that featured um ease on down the road that ended up saving it and it brought Mm -hmm. in sort of an unconventional broadway audience like i read multiple articles like later on in the run that said that the um audience was pretty like 50 50 white and black which is super super unusual for um, a Broadway show even today. Yeah, yeah. At this point in 1975, everyone is uh, pretty familiar with the 1939 MGM movie. But even before that, as Anna mentioned, The Wizard of Oz was published in 1900 and was this series of 14 children's books that are actually very different than um, the movie that um, we kind of have grown to know and love. And I would say that um, this musical reimagining of The Wizard of Oz his more tribute to the books and um the library of congress kind of did a huge exhibit about the wizard of oz i guess in the year 2000 so it's 100th anniversary and i think they make a really good point where um the wizard of oz is really this crowning jewel of you know it's like america's homegrown fairy tale and when you look at how it's influenced our culture in so many different ways something like the whiz being like a spawn of that is really exciting to me totally and it's like it's it's a fairy tale but you can also sort of read lots of uh, kind of contemporary subtext into it like the wizard of oz there are readings where it's like so the little girl from the midwest typical american meets up with a brainless scarecrow farmers a tin man with no heart industry a cowardly lion, politicians, in particular William Jennings Bryan, and a flashy but ultimately powerless wizard, technology. And then um, there is an article that came out like a little bit after The Wiz came out that was sort of talking about how 
The Wiz kind of updates that to have it relate to black culture. The Wiz is full of symbols and associations, obvious and obscure, that relate to crucial aspects of the black experience and culture. The main themes running through the show are slavery and emancipation, the black church and religion, and the great black migration from rural south to urban north. So it's, you know, it's interesting that this story can really be tweaked to sort of, where on the surface it's kind of this shallow story, but it can really express all of these interesting, like, political ideas. And I think what is interesting about this show, I think it really started a trend um, in the 70s, where in the 60s, in John Bush Jones's Our Musicals Ourselves, he said that there was a real lack of Black creative-led uh, musicals, whether they be reviews or book musicals like this. Here's the quote that I was looking for from Our Musicals Ourselves. The new style black show, starting with The Wiz, was retreating from the problem show of the early 1970s and advancing it in a different direction altogether. Instead of addressing issues like racism, segregation, and discrimination, as did the early 70s black musicals, the new black show stressed black culture, black history, and black heritage, especially musical heritage. Pride and joy replaced anger and confrontation and the creators of these shows dug deep for their inspiration and material. Historical figures and eras that have been neglected or ignored now became the source of post-bicentennial black musicals. So the creative team, Charlie Smalls, wrote the music and lyrics, and this was the only show that he ever wrote. But the interesting thing is that one of the songs, uh, Everybody Rejoice, which is also sometimes called Brand New Day, uh, because that's like the chorus, um, was written by Luther Vandross, and I haven't, I was really looking to find the backstory behind how that ended up in the show, but I wasn't able to find any information. It's not common for someone to write a whole score and then just have one song be by someone else. Yeah. The saddest thing is that Charlie Smalls is not at the ceremony to um, accept his award. I know. But I think that The Wiz, it seemed like, from what I've read, had kind of a troubled and, um, you know, uneven out-of-town experience. So. Yeah, so Jeffrey Holder was originally going to be, like, the director, choreographer, costume designer, and play The Wiz. And he is someone who is very, like, a real renaissance man. Here's a little tidbit of the various things that he's done um, that was in a profile of him. So, first of all, he was, like, a, a dancer and choreographer. In addition to his dance activities, Holder has appeared in several films. He was the evil Baron Samdi in the James Bond adventure Live and Let Die and played William Shakespeare the Tenth in Rex Harrison's Dr. Doolittle. He has also been in many TV dramas, has served as guest theater critic for NBC TV News, and has written two books, one a retelling of West Indies legends, Black Gods, Green Island, the other a Caribbean cookbook, which he illustrated himself. His next project is a ballet he will choreograph in Mexico for the Ballet Folklorico. Yeah, and he talks about, I think in the same profile, wanting to make a movie, and he's listing his influences as Visconti and Antonioni, which are, you know, two Italian art house directors. Um, so it's just so clear that through his work in The Wiz and pretty much everything else that he does is that he has such a vision for everything. So then what happened was he was going to do all that stuff and then they were going to force him to be to co-direct with someone else and he said, I'm not going to do that, I'm just going to do costumes. So he like dropped out of every other thing and then when it was having trouble out of town, they fired... So the director they were going to make him co-direct ended up being the only director... But they fired him out of town, and then Jeffrey came back as the director. But he did not choreograph it, which is interesting because he has such like a dancing background. He just directed it and did the costumes, which he won Tony's for. And I didn't look up the stats, but I feel like the only other person who won directing and costumes 
would be Julie Taymor for The Lion King because yeah. I feel like that's <laughs> such an unusual combination of things to do for one show. Mm-hmm. The costumes for this are incredible. And I think that in the same way that the costumes of The Lion King really enhanced and moved forward the story, I think that that can be said about this. I think that the tone of this story is really um, summed up in the costumes. They're really magnificent. And there's like a lot of little sort of hidden Easter eggs and details in the costumes when you look closely. Some of the costumes are on display at... Uh, the Smithsonian African American History Museum, and they did sort of an interesting feature on them online, and we're going to be posting some of those pictures on our Instagram so you can see, like, some of the amazing details that he put into them. Let's talk about the music a little bit, because this is, I think this is a great score, but the recording really doesn't do it justice. And I was listening to it, and I was like, why is this so like low energy and it was because they didn't record it in the way that cast recordings are usually done where it's like a one-day marathon session and like the actors are in there with the orchestra and they kind of just do it all and that usually sort of captures like the energy of it but they recorded it more like a pop album where they did the rhythm tracks first then they did the strings and horns and then they did the, the backing vocals and then they did the lead vocals like sort of all on different days at different times mm-hmm. and you can really tell like the really sort of canned sound to it yeah there's a flatness to it that i think i don't necessarily associate with this type of shows recording from this era no and there's like an audio bootleg of the opening night performance and you can tell that it's like that really has sort of like the energy and fun of it so the like clips that we're gonna cut in are gonna be from that from that bootleg and not from the cast album this did have a couple of breakout songs that did chart it's sort of bizarre So there was a studio disco group called Consumer Rapport, spelled, you know, R-A-P-P-O-R-T. And uh, the lead vocalist was one of the pit singers from The Wiz, and they covered Ease On Down the Road, which charted on, you know, the Soul Singles chart and the Hot 100. And then they did it again with Diana Ross and Michael Jackson for the film version, which did a little bit better. And it was also produced by Quincy Jones, who did the production for the movie soundtrack. And that was one of the first times that Michael Jackson ended up working with Quincy Jones, which of course was like a very fruitful and uh, iconic partnership. That version of Ease On Down the Road got Michael Jackson his first Grammy nomination as like a solo artist, which is kind of interesting. It was right at the beginning of his solo career. Oh, and then something even more unusual. So Stephanie Mills, who was the original Dorothy, she was like 14 or 15. She eventually like broke out and had sort of a solo R&B career. And she recorded her signature power ballad at the end home she did kind of like a soft rock (laughs) non-broadway arrangement in 1989 which is you know 15 years later which also charted and did pretty well for her you tell us should we try and stay So that's a very kind of late, isolated incident of a Broadway song becoming a pop song. It didn't chart on like the sort of standard 100. It it got number one on what at the time was called the Hot Black Singles chart. <laughs> Thankfully, <laughs> Sounds like a dating app. Yeah. <laughs> which is now called the hot R&B and hip hop chart. And I don't know if this is because of the movie, which I think 
you know, after just saying that, I think it definitely is because <laughs> of the movie. But, you know, songs like Ease On Down the Road and Home are really recognizable. And Well, I, I think Ease On Down the Road also is because of that kind of omnipresent commercial campaign. Mm-hmm. Like, from what it sounds like, that commercial was just playing constantly in the late 70s. And speaking of Michael Jackson and Stephanie Mills, there was a lot of rumors going around at the time that they were dating. I think later she did confirm that they were dating. Yeah, she later on did, but at the time she did not. Yeah. But... It was very sweet. And the guy who played the scarecrow would chaperone them when they hung out. (laughs) Not to get into the movie too much, because that's really like its own can of worms, but it was made in 1978, so that's only three years after the show came out. And originally, Stephanie Mills was going to play her role, but Diana Ross was like, I need to play Dorothy. Barry Gordy, who ran Motown, was going to produce the movie, and she like went around him and made a deal. She like convinced Universal to produce it, but only if she starred as Dorothy. Um, And Pauline Kael, who was a writer for The New Yorker, described her efforts to get the film into production as perhaps the strongest example of sheer will in film history. (laughs) Um, But the movie is pretty, like, famously messy. Like, they made a lot of weird changes. But it did have, you know, Michael Jackson, very young Michael Jackson playing the Scarecrow. Richard Pryor plays the wizard. Yeah. Um, But it was a huge flop, and it basically killed sort of like the black film renaissance of the the late 70s because it was such a failure that studios were like you know we're we're not going to do this anymore which is uh pretty sad yeah and it's interesting that universal ended up producing the movie because the producer of this show is actually 20th century fox on broadway and they were really feeding it money while it was failing out of town. So the reviews were pretty mixed, as we mentioned before. Or The New Yorker had really nice things to say about it. The New York Times, Clive Barnes, was kind of like, this isn't really for me, but I respect it. His quote from his review in the first paragraph, he says, Criticism is not objective. I found myself unmoved for too much of the event, but I was respectfully unmoved, not insultingly unmoved. There is a high and mighty difference. (laughs) But one of the sort of maybe surprising advocates was Sondheim, who was also very prolific during this period and writing a very different kind of show, like very cerebral and always about, you know, rich, unhappy white people. Um, (laughs) So in an interview from 1976, the interview asked, what are some recent musicals that he's admired? And he said... First of all, he said he saw it six times on Broadway, and he said, actually, admire is an odd word, he says, because there's very little I admire. For me, the word means something I'd like to sign my name to, and I see very little I'd like to sign my name to that I haven't already signed my name to, if you know what I mean. (laughs) My favorite musical on Broadway at the moment by far is The Wiz, because it captures the most elusive quality there is, joy. I really admire that, because I personally don't know how to do it. If I consciously sat down and said I wanted to write something that would send people out of the theater really happy, I wouldn't know how to go about it. And something I found out while researching this that's really a bummer is that so after, you know, the iconic 90s Cinderella with Brandy and Whitney Houston, the TV movie, the same producers were started pre-production for a version of The Wiz that would star um, Anika Noni Rose, who was a total unknown at the time. But then it fell apart due to rights issues. But I really would have liked to have seen that. So I want to... I want to talk about something extremely weird that I found while I was researching, and this is a prime example of why you should never trust Wikipedia. 
So I was on Wikipedia and they have a chart of the roles and then like who's played them in respective revivals and, you know, film versions and whatever. On there, they have a 1995 Apollo version starring Whitney Houston as Dorothy, Keith David as the Tin Man, Cedric the Entertainer as the Lion, Aretha Franklin as Anne M, Loretta Devine as Glinda, Bernie Mac as the Wiz. So I was like, hmm. I can't believe I never heard about that, (laughs) especially since Aretha Franklin just died. You would think there would be like clips from it or something. So I started to research it and spoiler alert, it never happened. Someone has been going through and like editing all of these people's pages to be like they were in this 1995 Apollo version of The Wiz. And the people like Whitney Houston and Aretha Franklin who have like Wikipedia pages who are obviously better monitored, like Mm -hmm. it got taken out. So my conspiracy theory so they say that eveline which is the wicked witch and sort of one of the juiciest roles is played by someone named chandra curly young who is like sort of the least famous out of all of those people mm-hmm. um and she's been in a lot of tyler perry movies and it says that she won a tony playing eveline in 1995 first of all a production at the apollo is not eligible for the tonys oh my god so i think it must be someone either like on her team or like a super fan of her that was like because Really, Aretha Franklin would play Eveline if she was in that cast. She would not be wasted on NM. And also, that would not be a performance that would be in the lead actress category. Exactly. She sings one song at the end. <laughs> I'm sure this is probably going to be taken off Wikipedia now that I've drawn attention to it, but it's just something. It spans multiple people's pages, so that just goes to show. <laughs> look for the citations. Look for the sources. People can get away with some shit. Yeah, I just thought that was extremely bizarre because I would have loved to see that production if it happened. Yeah, yeah. That's an amazing cast. And I watch clips from the 2009 encores that are bootlegs that someone put up on YouTube. I think it still holds up. Yeah. It's really great. The score is really amazing and it kind of sucks that the version of it that we have as an original Broadway cast recording feels flat and doesn't really give the full dimension of how fun and whimsical and magical it is yeah and how good those performances were Mm -hmm. so since none of the productions did performances we gave each other the assignment of coming up with what numbers we thought they should perform and we did not tell each other what it was Mm -hmm. so i think uh now it's time to talk about what we think the wish should have performed do you want to go first yeah i'll go first so i think that since this is such a familiar story it should be one of those like everyone kind of has their own song so i thought that for the tonys it would be interesting if with a narrator they kind of strung together um you know like a 10 minute retelling of the story where you know we start with aunt m singing the feeling we once had We're transported to Oz. The scarecrow can have a couple lines of I was born on the day before yesterday. They 
he's on down the road. The Tin Man gets his song. The Lion gets his song. Get to Oz, they meet the wizard, and then we have a little bit of the Wicked Witch. And then everybody rejoice, big production number. And we end with like a little bit of Dorothy singing home. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you'd be able to fit all that in there. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> so maybe what I'm actually saying is that they should just perform the whole show <laughs> at the Tonys. No, but I feel like I have seen Tonys performances where it is like a 10 minute. No, it's true. Mon- maybe that's like the wrong instinct and maybe there are too many songs in what I just described. <laughs> but I think that, you know, maybe we can cut an M song and have it be when Dorothy first arrives and get a little snippet of each of the the Tin Man, the Lion, and the Scarecrow song, have them do Ease On Down the Road, get them to Oz somehow. I think that Mabel King playing Eveline needs to be showcased and then just end with home. <laughs> okay, I respect that. So mine, mine is sort of similar. I also wanted a medley, but I think it should just be No Bad News. <laughs> And then you do sort of like a shortened version of her death, and then you do everybody rejoice. Because I think those are the most fun and they're also uh familiar yeah 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 and you you get to showcase the whole cast even though they don't really i mean in everybody rejoice everybody gets like a solo line yeah yeah so that's my uh that's my pitch Mm. 
to do Mac and Mabel next? Yeah, yeah, that's what I actually have next. Next up, we have Mac and Mabel, which was a big old flop. Mm-hmm. It ran from October 1974 to November 1974 with five previews and 66 performances. And the book was by Michael Stewart and music and lyrics were by Jerry Herman and they had collaborated they had also collaborated on Hello Dolly yeah and it was directed by and choreographed by Gower Champion who also um, had a stake in Dolly as well yeah so this was like a reteaming of collaborators that had had this you know huge stinking hit in the 60s the plot is based on a true story. It involves the tumultuous romantic relationship between Hollywood director Max Sennett and Mabel Norman, transformed from an artist model to a waitress from Flatbush, Brooklyn, for the musical, who became one of his biggest stars. In a series of flashbacks, Sennett relates the glory days of Keystone Studios from 1911, when he discovered Norman and cast her in dozens of his early two-reelers through his creation of Sennett's Bathing Beauties and the Keystone Cops to Mabel's death from tuberculosis in 1930. So this show right out the gate had two big problems. The first one was that it had a hard time kind of reconciling the tone between whether it was sort of like a like a romantic musical comedy, but it was one that had sort of a dark and unhappy ending. And, uh, you know, the real life Mac and Mabel were not really such pleasant people. Yeah. Um, and then the other one is that like it was sort of hard to capture the medium of silent film and uh, translate it to the stage. It's more of a concept of a story rather than an actual story. I think that with early Hollywood, there is a lot of fiction mixed with reality, and there isn't necessarily a true account of whatever happened. And I think that the murkiness of the character's points of view and the story really reflects that. So Jerry Herman has said that it's his favorite score that he has done. It does play well on the cast album, but I think it's one of those scores where like the book problems are just so immense and like so at odds with the tone of the score that it's never going to succeed anywhere except like as a, as an album. Mm-hmm. I think, in my opinion, it's my favorite Jerry Herman score. I also liked it a lot, and a lot of them have been stuck in my head. Mm-hmm. Jerry Herman can really write an earworm, but I think. He maybe was, like, not the right fit for this subject. He doesn't really seem comfortable sort of delving into the darkness that it seems like this story needs. Mac has that one song. He has this song called I Want to Make the World Laugh, where it's just, like, him talking about how he doesn't want to make dramatic movies. He only wants to make comedies. But, like, coming from a guy who was, like, you know, he was abusive towards Mabel, like, physically and emotionally, he, like, really just has a lot of demons. That seems like there was an opportunity to have sort of this, like, darkly ironic song where it's, like, and not to, like, bring up Sondheim because, you know, he and Jerry Herman, like, do very different <laughs> do very different things. But, like, I feel like Sondheim is so good at writing those lyrics where it's, like, the characters revealing more about themselves than they intend to just by, like, what they're saying and how they're saying it. And I feel like a a song about, like, not evil guy, but this kind of, like, cranky and who, like, terrorizes other people being like, I just want to make the world laugh. Having it be sort of like a straightforward song seems sort of like a missed opportunity. Yeah, I think as far as character development goes, Mac and Mabel are just on two vastly different tracks. Also, they don't have any duets, which seems like, it seems like obvious 
you know, like, number one, you got to give him a duet. Kind of going off what you just said about Jerry Herman, in um, a 1999 review of a regional production, Ben Brantley starts his review quoting um, the opening song, Movies Were Movies. One of the lyrics is, No one pretended that what we were doing was art, sings the director, Max Sennett, looking back on the pioneer days of silent film comedy in the musical Mac and Mabel. You can imagine the show's composer and lyricist, Jerry Herman, saying much the same thing about his own career. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, necessarily, but I, I think that is a weakness to this show and part of the disconnect between book and, and, uh, and score. In The Secret Life of the American Musical, he writes about how the opening number is the perfect example of a song that is like is good but is not serving the story correctly and gets everyone off on the wrong foot because the show opens with Mac in front of his decrepit studio and him being like nobody appreciates you know the pure art form of what we used to do and then he starts singing that song where he says no one pretended that what we were doing was art so he writes so which is it what's going on our narrator upon whom we're forced to rely is unreliable he can't keep his own point of view straight he's suffering from multiple personality disorder and so is Mac and Mabel the problem may seem like a technical glitch easily correctable, but it's actually huge and insurmountable because it leaves the audience in trouble, puzzled and fearful that they'll never figure this one out. And they won't because the authors can't decide for themselves. Is the show going to be about how wonderful the silent movies were or about how venal and commercial? Is it nostalgic or angry? If the former, why the bilious and combative narrator? If the latter, why the misty-eyed tribute to Chaplin and D.W. Griffith? What's the tone supposed to be? Is the point of view fundamentally dark or light, bitter or celebratory? And will we ever be able to take anything Max says at face value? Words are coming out of his mouth, but they don't add up. This is partly the result of the limitations of the source material, the real Mac being something of a cold megalomaniac, and the real Mabel being something of a self-destructive drug addict. But it's also important to understand that the show was created in the mid-70s by artists who had done their best work in the mid-60s, when musicals were still largely projecting blue skies and optimism. By 1976, there was a darker vision of America on display on Broadway. Mac and Mabel wants to have it both ways. It's the awkward love child of Hello Dolly and Follies. The score, which contains a couple of terrific ballads, largely consists of upbeat classic Jerry Herman tunes, while the book keeps getting darker and darker and darker until the lights go out. But this bifurcated point of view is on display right from the moment the curtain goes up, and the audience never could find its way out of trouble. No, I think that kind of sums it up really perfectly. It just kind of seems like they didn't do their homework with this one. And I think that in you know, the mid 70s, there was a lot of interest about silent Hollywood era. And um, it was kind of the last chance for um, people to kind of get the stories from the dying generation that pioneered the movies. Um, I know a few years later, there was like this 11 hour documentary made where um, these British filmmakers sat down with every living, you know, silent film star or director or producer and interviewed them and created this like amazing oral history of that time period and this musical just seems like such a um, superficial brushing of a story that could be very interesting yeah and I've seen some people speculate that maybe it would work better as a movie because you can sort of use the film vocabulary in the way that you can't on stage and in the original production the original review talks about how like Gower Champion maybe like over-directed it and sort of overcompensated with a dazzling physical production. We have Mabel, to say nothing of Mac, coming down a rope, a shower of bathing beauties, swizzling down a multicolored corkscrew slide. 
Mac, to say nothing of Mabel, suspended over the audience on a giant camera dolly and dozens of special effects, some of which would have been worthy of Busby Berkeley, and many of which were. It sounds really fun, but also it's like silent film and the Berkeley musical are two different things. Right, and stuff like pies in the face and like cops hitting each other with billy clubs and falling down like is not as charming as it used to be. Yeah, speaking of pies in the face, an interesting bit of research that I came across is that Mabel Norman is in fact often credited as the first person to kind of popularize the pie in the face gag. At this time in the 70s when um, there's a real surge of feminist scholarship, especially feminist film scholarship, her being this pie in the face gag is kind of seen as like a feminist act. But speaking of Mabel, so Mac and Mabel were played by Robert Preston and Bernadette Peters, who was sort of on the come up. And I think one thing that people found a little uncomfortable about the original production was their age difference. He was 30 years older than her. She was 27 and he was 57. And in real life, Mac and Mabel only had a 12-year age difference. I think that's something where casting is really important because they already have that power imbalance where he is, you know, the director, she's like the star that he made. And it just is like a little bit icky if he's also like so much older than her. You know, this is a performance that makes a star. And I think that, you know, in the original review in the New York Times by Hark Harris, he comments on the fact that last night, wide-eyed, diminutive, and contra-alto, Bernadette Peters found herself as a major Broadway star. And, you know, good for her. She she sounds great on the recording. Mm-hmm. Like, those songs are really, uh, they really sound good on her. You know, she really has great comedic timing. So this show has been, like, revised several times in an attempt to make it work. Um, and one of the big revisions is that instead of having her die at the end, or instead of showing her death, I think they have, like, a fake sort of dream wedding sequence where they get married, which I think it just rang false and was... Uh, not an improvement. Something something uh, interesting that I learned is that Michael Stewart's sister has done some revisions on the book, and she is Francine Pascal, who wrote the Sweet Valley High books. Oh, seriously? Yeah. Um, that's very funny. Yeah. While it's been revised, I think that there still are a lot of problems. Yeah, I think the problems are baked in in a way that can never be fixed. Going back to um, Bernadette Peters in the role of Mabel, she wasn't the original Mabel. There was actually, um, in Not Since Carrie, there was a senseless to-do over the casting of Mabel. Penny Fuller was first announced, then Marsha Rod was hired. Rod was fired by Champion when he saw a younger singer named Kelly Garrett in a show called Words and Music. Champion hired and then fired Garrett, announcing to the press that she couldn't act and the role went to Bernadette Peters. With her wistful Cupid doll face and established talent, Peters was the obvious choice all along. Why Champion went through three other women remains a mystery. You know that's never a good sign. Yeah, but funny enough, it had a lot of success out of town, so I wonder if they were imagining it was going to be a hit. Uh, I mean, I'm sure they were, because it was the dream the hello dolly dream team yeah (laughs) like what could go wrong and this show also has sort of the jerry herman classic like you know like everybody welcoming the heroine song that's also you know the title songs to hello dolly and mame Mm -hmm. um and this one's called when mabel walks into the room by that time it's like his third time doing it so it's not as fresh as it 
as it used to be. I think that the, if not the best song from it and the most uncharacteristically Herman song that's in it is the torch song that Mabel sings towards the end, Time Heals Everything. Mm -hmm. I feel like lyrically, it's a little more complex than a lot of his other songs. Hearing Bernadette Peters sing it on the recording and it has become part of her, um, you know, stage cabaret act repertoire, but um, it's really fantastic. Yeah. I really think that this is a recording worth a listen to. Totally. Mac, actually, according to Kenneth Anger's Hollywood Babylon, was the first person to kind of use his uh, casting couch in a licentious way. Yikes. Um, which I'm sure had been going on in the theater and in any other form of art before that. But in Hollywood, um, you know, Max and its uh, casting couch was kind of um, notorious. It's not really a love story that you root for. A couple other interesting Mabel facts. Right around this time, her grand nephew had written a kind of his account of her life. Um, where he really disputed the fact that she was a drug addict and was actually as kind of the gatekeeper for the family of her legacy was really unhappy with the musical and how she was portrayed. And, you know, there are kind of conflicting reports where Mabel Norman in real life really cultivated this image of a party girl, but he argues that she was very sick and it's kind of impossible to know now. You know, she eventually succumbed to tuberculosis, but he argues that she had like a long line of respiratory and nasal problems um, that were not drug related. Well, I guess we'll never know. Yeah. She actually directed a lot of films herself. Um, and she directed Charlie Chaplin and kind of stood up to him when he wanted to improvise. And she might not have originated this term, but um, I think it's applicable to call her a stunt queen um, because she loved performing her own stunts. See, that's cool. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, like, I feel like I could write a better musical <laughs> about them. And this is really a good example of how, like, how ephemeral, like, a good musical is. Because it's, like, it's got a great score. It's got a great story. But... Those two were just never able to mesh in a cohesive way mm -hmm. and really do it justice. Yeah, and I think that one of the rules behind musicals that um, not, not Since Carrie, which is kind of a um, history of Broadway flops, is no sequels. But I think that there could be a really fun <laughs> Mac and Mabel sequel that is just about Mabel. Well, Mabel's dead. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, this story is told in flashback, but maybe on Mabel's deathbed, she tells her version of things. I, I could get behind that for sure. Mac and Mabel too. <laughs> Mabel's <It's> revenge. revenge. <laughs> uh, okay, I'm I'm into that. Yeah. So let's talk about what we think they should have performed. Do you want to go first, or is it my turn to go first? You go first. Okay. So I had a hard time with this one because they don't perform any duets and you want to highlight um, both of them. So my thought would be either you would have Bernadette doing Wherever He Ain't, which is like a real banger. It's time to call it all now to our bell. If he Or you would have Robert Preston doing one of sort of the two 
I guess there's only two production numbers that are about like his films, and one of them is My Heart Leaps Up slash Hit Him on the Head, which is about his sort of like <laughs> slapstick cops. Cause every time a cop falls down, my heart leaps up. And then he also does one called Hundreds of Girls, which is about the formation of, like, the bathing beauties. What gives a man power and punch? Tina for breakfast and Lena for lunch. Having hundreds and hundreds of girls. Analysts find this thing called modern man was never designed with only one eternal partner in mind. And so I gotta yell to hell with propriety, leave a variety. And I think they said there were like 16 female chorus members in the show. So there was like, I think that would have been fun to see. And I think ensemble. that that's when they were coming down the slide. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So I would have liked to see that. Yeah. I had a similar thought where I thought that that would be kind of a awesome, fun thing to see. With these 70s Tonys though, I don't think it's the same case as it is nowadays it sometimes feels like big production numbers get a little stripped down but i do think that that would be really fun to see the closest thing that they do have a, to a duet is robert preston as max sings the song i won't send roses i won't send roses or hold the door i won't remember which dress you wore my heart is too much in control the lack of romance in my soul will turn you gray kid so stay away kid immediately after mabel responds to this song with her own reprise of it so who needs roses or stuff like that so who wants chocolates? They'd make me fat. Which, considering that really troubling um, interview with Bernadette Peters that was in <laughs> um, New York Magazine a year or two ago, um, you know, she should eat some chocolate. <laughs> Live a little. It's maybe not the best song, but I think the best song in the show. I do think that Time Heals Everything and um, Wherever He Ain't are the two real fun showstoppers. But also if you wanted to get, I guess I'm doing a bad job with this assignment. It's okay. I mean, that's, that's part of the fun. Also, movies were movies, even though it is a little wishy-washy, I think gives a good idea of what the show yeah. is about and I think is kind of exciting. So Dozens of blundering cops in a thundering chase. Getting a bang out of lemon meringue in the face. Bandits attacking a train. One little tramp with a cane. Movies were movies were movies when I ran the show. He makes the point in the book that it's not a bad number. It's just confusing point of view and just not the right song for that moment. Oh, and obviously the big thing that we didn't talk about. So it was nominated for eight Tonys like The Wiz, and it didn't win any. But the big snub was for Best Score for Jerry Herman. So the other three Best Musicals also got Best Score nominations, but Mac and Mabel was snubbed for something called A Letter for Queen Victoria, um, which is 
not a traditional Broadway musical in the slightest, and we're not going to cover it in detail except to say it was an experimental piece of theater. It was by a guy who um, did these works that were incredibly long. He did one that was performed on a mountainside in Iran, and the performance took a full week for a total of 168 hours. So this, A Letter for Queen Victoria, ran for just under three hours, and it employed dialogue as well as primal screams and dog barking to tell its non-story. And a non-story it was. It wasn't really about Queen Victoria, although the character, played by Wilson's 88-year-old grandmother, Alma Hamilton, appeared in two scenes, and four characters do indeed read a letter to her. But since all speak simultaneously with overlapping dialogue, the content of the letter is purposely unclear because for Wilson, the sound of the words and not their meaning is what is important. The characters include ones with names such as 1, 2, 2C, and 4. And throughout the evening, Andrew DeGroote and Julia Busto dance on the sidelines in whirling dervish fashion. The evening was mostly a display of Dada-esque verbo pyro- verbal pyrotechnics with dialogue so convoluted that according to T.E. Kalem in Time, it made Gertrude Stein at her murkiest sound like a paragon of pellucid clarity. Yeah, which seems really out of characteristic for the Tonys. This piece was by Robert Wilson, who you might know from Einstein at the Beach is kind of his towering achievement of this style that he collaborated with Philip Glass on. It just seems very out of left field for Broadway to even acknowledge that something like this exists. Totally. And to knock out like a very sort of traditional score. And this was the only nomination A Letter for Queen Victoria got. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, Michael Stewart, who wrote the book, took out like a full page ad in Variety about how uh, egregious it was that the Tonys snubbed Jerry Herman's score. But at the time of the Tonys, too, I think it's worth mentioning that Mac and Mabel had been closed for close to five months. But it still got eight nominations. It yeah. got as many as The Wiz. So the Tonys did like it. They just went out of their way to say we liked everything except <laughs> the score. Ooh. Yeah. So, sorry, Jerry Herman. And so I'm looking for a spot. Map that he's going 